You are listening to a sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ in Mulvane, Kansas. Subscribe in your favorite podcatching app or find and listen to any sermon online at mulvanechurch.com slash sermons. A, uh, a review, and a sort of a conceptual review of the whole purpose of this enterprise of which we engage in in and through and by the grace of Christ. In a minute or two, we're going to go to Acts 26. It's toward the end of the book of Acts. But I'd like to think about something just briefly. You know it. We don't need to turn and read it. In Acts 16, there's a famous question. The Philippian jailer falls down at the feet of the Apostle Paul because he'd heard that Paul was preaching a way of salvation. That was common knowledge in the town. That's why Paul had been arrested. And Paul had been thrown in his jail. And Paul and his companion, they sang praise to their God, though they were in dire straits, shackled to the floor, and having been beaten. They sang praise to God. They didn't act like normal prisoners. And then an earthquake came, and uh, we know it opened up the doors to the prison, yet no one escaped. And the, the jailer, the Philippian jailer, knew that this somehow centered around what Paul was doing. And he came and threw, throwing himself down at Paul's feet, said, Sir, what must I do to be saved? Now, when we come to that question, in the middle of the book of Acts, there is so much we already know from prior reading of the book of Acts that we don't hardly even pause to think about all the things that are not in that question. But to be saved. What did the Philippian jailer think he might be being saved from? Well, we, we know uh, from the rest of the book of Acts what the gospel message of salvation uh, from sin is. But I wonder how much of that the jailer, a pagan, uh, a Roman, how much he knew. And then I wonder if he knew how he was going to be saved. That he was going to be saved by and through Christ. By the time we've read the Gospels and half the book of Acts, what do we all know? But I wonder how much of that the Philippian jailer knew by then. And he was going to be saved to what? Saved from something to something. What's he think we're going to be saved to? And what's the purpose of this? What are we going to be saved for? And so the Apostle Paul's short answer within that text was believe on the Lord Jesus. Christ, you'll be saved, you and all your house. And those who don't believe in baptism love that answer uh, because it's a summary answer of the gospel that doesn't include baptism in the summary. But we know that that wasn't the entirety of the message because the, the man took Paul to his house and Paul preached the gospel to him. Well, if just believe is the whole message, uh, then what do you preach? Well, he preached to him for a while, but he didn't preach to him all that long because what happened the same hour of the night? He took him and baptized him. Then they brought him back, and he continued to minister to him in his, his wounds because of the beating and, and feed him and his companion. And so a couple of things. One is there, is there is more than just the summary of the gospel. Certainly there's summaries of the gospel, which is believe in the Lord Jesus. And, but there's more to it than that, and this morning we want to get to some of that. But also rest assured, if the Apostle Paul in the middle of the night in the kitchen of the jailer's house, could get through it in the same hour, trust that I can too. 
Well, that might be a misplaced trust. We'll just have to see. But there is something to say, but it doesn't require a graduate level course, does it? It is something that in the, at the kitchen table, uh, w- with an hour, uh, you can teach somebody who's willing to listen. Well, we're going to fast forward a little bit further, as I said, to Acts 26. In Acts 26, what we have is the Apostle Paul uh, speaking now to a different group of audience, uh, not like this jailer, although he is in jail again, what do you know? He is in jail again, but now he's speaking to the head guys in a different jail. He's speaking to the governor of the Roman province named Felix. He's preaching to a visiting dignitary, uh, a king from a nearby region uh, who was the uh, great-grandson of Herod the Great, the man who built the city that they were in, by the way. And so he's got an audience of dignitaries, but he doesn't have the preparation of mind like he had when he talked to the jailer that these guys are automatically willing to listen to what he says. They haven't seen miracles like the jailer saw. Uh, They haven't felt the earthquake. They haven't felt the risk of life. Uh, These fellows are pretty comfortable and pretty secure in themselves, in their position, and what they're doing. And so the Apostle Paul will explain to them the basics of what Christianity is about in an attempt uh, to persuade them by the, the normal means of rhetoric and, 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 and uh, proof, a logical proof and the use of scriptures the same way that we try to persuade men today. And so he'll go through the facts in a much longer way than is recorded in Acts 16. But we're going to get to the same message. So Acts 26, 14, the Apostle Paul telling this governor and this king what it is that this is all about and why he's been in jail in their facility now for two years. He said that when we had all fallen to the ground, that is because the Lord had appeared brighter than the noonday sun uh, as he was on his road to Damascus, he said, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. But arise and stand on your feet. For this purpose I've appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness. Not only the things you have seen, but the things which will appear to you. Delivering you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles, to whom I'm sending you. And so I'm going to make you an apostle. Uh, You've seen some so far, you've seen me, you're going to see more. And now, this is what you're you're going to do. You're going to see these things so... Verse 17, you can declare them to them, uh, delivering you from the Jews and the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, in order that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and the inheritance among those who've been sanctified by faith. So here it is. I'm going to make you an apostle. He's now going to be not Saul the rabbi. He's, uh, we, we knew him in the early stage as Saul the persecutor from a Christian perspective. The Jews knew him as Saul the rabbi. He's now going to become the apostle Paul. So it'll be a little bit till that name gets there. But that's how we're going to know him now and through the rest of history. And so now you are going to become my apostle. And you're going to turn people from darkness to light. 
from the domain of Satan to God. And so you are going to be my instrument to deliver them this message that brings them to God. That is what the salvation is from, the domain of darkness, and you're going to bring them to God in order that they might receive remission of sins. That's how we're going to do this. And the inheritance among those who've been sanctified by faith in me. And so, by forgiveness through faith and the inheritance that comes with it. And so that's what you are going to go preach. So verse 22. So having obtained help from God to lead him to truth and to enlightenment in Christ and to do the uh, things that uh, he was called to do, and that had been some 20 years before, Paul says, I now stand this day testifying to all, both small and great, stating nothing other than what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place. And so this, was, this is what the prophets said. This was right there in the book that I was a rabbi of, but I didn't get it until I saw Christ. But I am now telling everybody, small and great. So Paul was preaching to this king, and Paul was preaching to this governor. But Paul would have been happy as well if the guy holding the drink tray, the guy bringing them snacks. He wanted to convert those guys too. Those guys from the kitchen who are standing at the door, trying to hear through the opening. He wants to convert them too. Those guards that have been stand, placed around the room. The audience members who are there. The, the other people who are up there in the third balcony. You know, just hoping to get any kind of seat at all for this event. He wants to convert all of them, the small and the great. Right there on the main chairs in the center of the room. And right there around him holding the chains. And right there, the guys holding the drinks. He wants to convert all of them. He said, this is what Moses and the prophet said would take place. That Christ was to suffer. And by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he should be the first to proclaim light to both the Jews and the Gentiles. And so we're not bound anymore by ethnic or uh, racial or prior religious considerations. We're going to go to the Jews and the Gentiles. We're going to go to the small and the great. We're going to take this same truth to all. And then Agrippa says, Paul, in a short time or almost, you persuade me to be a Christian. Now, I'm not sure if this is, hey, Paul, you almost got me too. Or Paul, man, if you keep going like this, I'm going to have to join you. I'm not sure exactly how he says this and how dismissive he is. He's giving partial credit, but partial dismissal. So you, you, you decide, and depending on your translation, your translators have had to decide how dismissive is Agrippa being and how much credit is Agrippa giving. He's giving at least partial credit, but he's also being at least partially dismissive, and you can decide for yourself how much of each one of those you think he is. And history doesn't give us any indication that he was ever persuaded in full. And so Paul says, I would to God that whether in a short time or a long time, not only you, but all who hear me this day, so there's the servants who are bringing the trays of food and drink. Here's the guys holding the chains that are keeping Paul in. Here's the guys watching the door. Here's the guys who are in every balcony at the place. I would that everybody who hears me this day would become as I am, except for these chains. And that has been something of the Christian ethic ever since. Every Christian has wanted everybody else to do what? Be a Christian, right? Don't we all want, having found such grace and wonder in Christ, haven't we all wanted that 
for those who we know and love the most in life, but also for those that we don't really care about all that much otherwise, but just for everybody in general. There's a general love, but especially a specific love for those that we care for most. So this is what we do. This is what Paul said this exercise is about, that we're saved from that dark life of sin. We're saved from the darkness that's in the world without a relationship with God. We're saved from the domain of Satan. A lot of people go, well, you know what? I know that God and Satan are having a war. I'm just going to sit this one out and watch and see who wins. Well, no. Or they're having a conflict, and I'll be a neutral observer. There is no moral Switzerland to which we can retreat in neutrality. There is only for all of us to be in one kingdom or another. And we know we're in one kingdom or another because in our conscience, we all know guilt and shame. And we all know second guessing and doubt. And we all have both received and have given promises that have been broken. And we've all been embarrassed morally by the things that have been done around us. And even more so by the things that we've done. We all understand that we should share in this world, but we all know the things that we have hoarded. And so we know that we're not neutral in this. Uh, We're going to be with God, or we're going to be with Satan. And our heart, you know, it tells us, do the right thing. And then our action said, oh, you know what, you did the wrong thing. Jeremiah speaking to this says, Jeremiah 17, he said, The heart is more deceitful than all else. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? And then it said, we have this, I, the Lord, can search the hearts. I test the minds. Even to give each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. So we know the problem of our heart. We know the guilt of our conscience. And even though we ignore it sometimes, uh, so many times it comes back to us in the quiet of the night as we're just trying to go to bed, and why did we do that? I shouldn't have done that. And oh, if it could have had to do over again. And the Lord knows our minds and hearts and searches and will give to us as we've done. And that's one thing we really can't stand. We couldn't stand to be given as we've truly done. But he offers grace in Christ. For those who would repent. Ephesians 4. The Apostle Paul says this. Talking about this wickedness of sin that's in the world. He said, I I therefore say and affirm together with the Lord. That you no longer, Christians. You no longer walk. As the Gentiles also walk. In the futility of their minds. In the darkening of their understanding. Excluded from the life of God. Because of the ignorance that is within them and because of the hardness of their hearts. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the purpose of every kind of greed with impurity. But you didn't learn Christ in this way. So there's a way of Christ. It's the way of right and true. It's the way to overcome these things. And as the Apostle Paul writes to these brethren, it can be a struggle to overcome them. Because we're so well practiced in them before We come to him because of what it says in Ecclesiastes. God said, behold, or Solomon says, behold, God made men upright, 
but they have sought out many devices. And so because of this dark life of sin, the scripture affirms that the wrath of God comes upon it. The wrath of God comes upon this evil. God will judge as we do. We need to be saved from the things that we have done. Now, we've been greatly encouraged in them by the devil, by the world. Uh, we, we, we did them sometimes in ignorance. We thought, well, that's the best we could do. Turns out it wasn't. We've been deceived in what is right and what is wrong. We've been weak and we've been selfish when we knew right from wrong. And somehow we're going to have to deal with our conscience, which tells us that this is true. What is said in Romans 1, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident among them, for God made it evident. And so, like those in the Bible who are called before God, Moses, Elijah, Isaiah, the most notable of worthies, what do they say when in the presence of God? I'm not worthy. Or John the Apostle in Revelation 1. He's undone at the sight and presence of the glorified Christ. And so we know there's wrath against evil that's done. And we know in our hearts we've done the evil things. So Romans 2 verse 4. Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? not knowing that the kindness of God leads to repentance. But because of your stubborn and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath at the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And so we we can either be unrepentant when the day comes, or we can take advantage of his kindness, his forbearance, his patience, his great grace. So that's what we're going to be saved from. And we all need that, each and every one. And we all need the one Savior, which is Christ. Uh, We'll turn to the Old Testament, Isaiah 53. Normally we think about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as the Gospels. I heard recently somebody describe these chapters, Isaiah 54, or 52, pardon, Isaiah 52 to 58. I heard somebody refer to these these chapters as the gospel according to Isaiah. And I think that's a really good way to approach it. It's, It's all prophecy. It's all 700 years before Christ came. One of the things that was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, found now, what, 75 years ago, it's called the Great Scroll of Isaiah because it's a massive scroll, and it's Isaiah. And you know what Isaiah in the time of Christ read like? Isaiah now. Uh, we have the Septuagint translations of the, of the scripture. I recently found some really well-produced documentaries uh, on Old and New Testament Bible characters and uh, about the uh, authorship of the Old Testament. Uh, but the, the problem with this really, really highly produced and well-done series is The author takes a view of the canon of Scripture and the authorship of the Old Testament, which is patently impossible because he has the Old Testament being completed after the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament was made. Now, there's a lot of things I don't know about the Old Testament canon, but I know it had to be made before it was translated. I I know that much. 
And so this guy has the, has the Old Testament being completed by its authors a hundred years after the Septuagint translation. Well, I know that can't be. Well, I'm not sure exactly when Isaiah was edited into its exact and final form, but I know it was before it was translated. So, so at least 250 years before the time of Christ, the Jews were reading these words, which we can read today. Isaiah 53, the gospel according to Isaiah, if we might call it that. Isaiah 53, 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging you were healed. That's quoted in 1 Peter 2, by the way. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to slaughter, and like a sheep that silent before its shearers, so he didn't open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living? For the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was due. He was carried away and carried off because he died for our sin. His grave was then assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he'd done no violence, nor was there deceit found in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to death. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He'll prolong his days, and the good measure of the Lord will prosper his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge of the righteous one. My servant, he'll justify many. He'll bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot, with, allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong. He will be poured out himself to death and numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressor. It goes on for about five more chapters. But what we find is the one who dies, the stroke that should have been borne by the people, borne by him, the one who dies then prospers. Imagine saying that someone will die and then they will prosper greatly. Yet such is the life of Christ. We have forgiveness in his blood. Just a few of the points here. This is the blood of the covenant poured out for many for the remission of sins. Or Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses by the riches of his grace. As prophesied, he's the one who died for us, our sacrifice, becoming our redeemer, our savior, our mediator, our life, our hope, our way. He did this purposely for us. And these things are then revealed in the gospel. This is what we preach. This is the good news. The wonderful coming and work of Christ made known to us and benefiting to all of us. This is the good news. Paul starts his book, 2 Timothy 1, verse 10. It's now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death, who brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. John had said, in him was life, and the life 
was the light of men. And Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness. Isn't that what we read from the beginning in Acts 26? Will come from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. So, saved from darkness and wrath and sin. Saved by Christ. Saved to this true light. This light that enlightens every man. In John 12, 46, I've come as a light to the world, that everyone who believes in me would not remain in darkness. And almost the same words as Acts 26, this is Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So our great personal problem of sin, our great communal problem of alienation from God and from one another, estrangement and and being without hope and being without guidance in this world. These are solved by Christ and what we're saved to. It's God who said, let light shine out of darkness. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. It's the same one who shone and poured out Christ in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now, that's... 2 Corinthians 4, 6, there's a lot there. Let's read that again. For God said, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness. We think about God creating light. It's this one who has shown in our hearts through the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, all these spiritual blessings. And so in this true light, we can have a new life. This is why we talk about Christians being born again. This is why we talk about a new beginning, all things being made new, a starting over. Ephesians 5, 8, you were formerly darkness. Don't we know? But now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. Be a child of light. You're in the light. We're to walk in the light. He is the light. He's the light for us. And we say we accept the light. Let that light shine through us and around us and everywhere about us. And let's live and walk by that. Romans 6, 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we died to sin as Christ died for sin. We also believe that we shall live with him. He's arisen to be alive forevermore. We begin that life now and continue it. In eternity, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer master over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Paul said that's a lesson for us. Even so, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So we're saved to this new life. The life that overcomes sin. The life that we've been given the enlightenment, we've been given the, the power by being freed from sin, been given the continual help that no matter how often we stumble, when we repent, he receives us and, and continues with us. So we've been saved to this wonderful life in Christ. And lastly, I said we try to get this done the same hour of the night, just as it was for the jailer. Two more things. What are we saved for? We're saved for righteousness. 
We are saved for righteousness. We're saved so we can be righteous. We're saved so we can be blameless and counted as those who didn't sin because of what's been done in Christ. Not that we didn't sin. Not that God forgets that. But he doesn't hold those sins against us. He forgives us uh, all our sin. And we are counted or accounted or imputed as righteous on the basis of faith. And so we're to live in this way of faith and of righteousness. You know, really a world without sin at all is our ultimate goal. When God first made man, where did he put man? In a beautiful garden with no sin. That's the, the, the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. But if you get to the end of the book, where has God placed the redeemed? In a beautiful city that's like a garden with what? With no sin. And at the end of the book, there's the same tree of life that was in the beginning of the book. And so, yes, God intends for us to be in a world without sin. And it troubles us to be in one now that's so full of it. And sometimes we're, we're participants in it. And that, that vexes us terribly. But what we find is the goal is to get us back to a world without sin. In Romans 14, it says this about the kingdom of God. It says the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. Now, this is a classic not but construction. Not this, but that. It's not eating and drinking. Now, in the kingdom of God, do we eat and drink? Well, I certainly hope to be part of the kingdom of eating and drinking here in just about 25 minutes, right? right? But that's not, that shouldn't be my main goal. What was to, just imagine if you hear, you know, the preacher, his main goal today was Sunday dinner. I'm hoping you'll see that this was my main goal today, right? This should be my main goal today, what I'm doing now, not Sunday dinner. Now, if you know the preacher, how many pe- people think the preacher likes Sunday dinner? I was waiting for an amen, but we'll go with that. You know we like Sunday dinner. But eating and drinking is not what the kingdom's about. It's not this but that. It's not the eating and drinking. But, it, what is it? Righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. So no, the kingdom's not even about preaching. Yeah, preaching has its place. But is the kingdom a preaching kingdom? No. It's not even that. It's a righteous kingdom. It's a peaceful kingdom. It's a joyous kingdom in the Holy Spirit. That's what the object of the exercise is. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. How do we have that? Well, by living in the right way. Colossians 3, it says this, And so, beloved, having been chosen of God, Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. Whoever has a complaint against one another, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule your heart, to which indeed you've been called in one body. Oh, and be thankful. Oh, Lord, be thankful. That this is the life to which we've been called. This is what we have. The description of the kingdom is compassion and kindness, humility and gentleness, patience, forbearance, forgiveness, love, unity, peace, and thankfulness. Yes, it's not eating and drinking. It is righteousness, peace, 
and joy. And all of this is ultimately to the glory of God. As Paul would say to the Corinthians, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. The glory of God. This is our ultimate end. We have been saved for God's glory. We sometimes think it must be for us and about us because we get so much out of it. But it's ultimately for and about Him. And He includes us in it, such as His love and His grace. So speaking of Christ, it says, Philippians 2, Therefore God has exalted Him, bestowed upon Him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord. And even that is to what? To the glory of the Father. And so it's all eventually and ultimately for and to the glory of the Father. Live in a way to fulfill that purpose. That's what you've been saved for. So you've been saved for glory. Saved from wrath and sin. Saved by Christ to light and life for righteousness, ultimately to the glory of God. Let us please live like this each and every day. With that, then we'll close. Asking if someone today needs to come confess Jesus. The jailer learned what he needed to do within an hour and was baptized. The governor and the king learned what to do and said, well, we'll get back to you on that. Be like the jailer, not like the king, not like the governor. Other governors and other kings did submit. They did obey the gospel. They did do what was said. But let us make sure that we ourselves understand and live out this way of life in Christ. Thank you for listening to this sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ. Additional sermons and information available at malvanechurch.com. Come see what a difference the Bible way makes.